This is the View from Apollo podcast, an ongoing conversation on alternative investing, economics, and the trends shaping up financial markets. The stock market rally that began in late 2023 continued throughout January. U.S. inflation is still trending towards the Fed's 2% annual target, employment is strong, and the overall U.S. economy is healthy. But the outlook remains uncertain, as in, is inflation really tamed? And if and when will the Fed start cutting rates? Apollo's global wealth strategist, Alex Wright, thinks caution should be the byword of the moment. In this episode, he shares his views with Apollo's global head of content strategy, J.P. Vicente. What I've described to investors this year really is a function of everyone has an investment destination, right? And the question is, how do you want to get there? Do you want to take a roller coaster ride and get calls from your investors all the time if you're an advisor? Or do you want to take a ticket on what I would describe as a passenger train? In this wide-ranging conversation, Alex and JP discuss Alex's views on the outlook for rates in public equities, asset allocation in 2024, the future of alternatives in wealth portfolios, and much more. So... Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm JP Vicente, Global Head of Content Strategy here at Apollo. And it is my pleasure to stand in today for the host of the View from Apollo podcast, the one and only Dr. Torsten Slock, our Chief Economist. Our guest today is Alex Wright, a partner and global wealth strategist here at the firm. In this role, Alex interacts with clients and market participants across the globe, discussing asset allocation strategies and deployment ideas for alternatives in wealth portfolios. I look forward to picking his brain about current market conditions and hearing his insights on current trends. So thank you so much for joining us today, Alex. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, JP, thank you for the invite and really looking forward to the conversation today. Thank you so much. Alex, we are recording this podcast on February 1st, just a day after the first Federal Reserve meeting of 2024, when the Fed kept rates unchanged, but also signaled that he was considering cutting rates, but also hinted that a cut wasn't really imminent. So what's your take on the outcome of the meeting and the potential implications for capital markets? Sure. Thank you. And I know we were all waiting to hear what the Fed was going to say yesterday. I think three main things came from this. First, it's clear that rates are going to be higher for longer. This is something that Torsten and I have been telling investors for quite some time and probably will settle closer to a Fed fund rates of three and a half to four percent, certainly not going back to zero. Second, March was too soon to assume that the rate cuts were going to begin. We think they will come, but it's going to take a little bit more time particularly given the strength that we have seen in housing, in wages, low unemployment, just as a few examples. And that six cuts may be too many in our view. We'll see how that progresses throughout the year, but I think the market got ahead of itself by pricing in six versus the three on the dot plot. So as far as what can investors think about as it relates to that is anticipate some more volatility. We've seen the last couple of days quite a bit of movement. We would anticipate that in the near future as well. That makes a lot of sense, right? It never it never really stops. But apparently, and neither do you. You keep globe trotting. And I know you've just returned from a week in Asia where you had many meetings with advisors and investors in the region. And this obviously in addition to the many meetings you've held here in the United States and Europe as well. So you have your finger on the proverbial pulse of the market, Alex. So what is top of mind for investors today, you know, in addition to what you just talked about? Sure. So I think first and foremost is allocation concept. Where should they be going for 2024? 
Certainly, I think the last couple of months of 23 surprised people to the upside, which was great. But at this point in time, the question really becomes, where do they go now? And what we have been discussing is really a back to the basics concept. You know, going back to capital asset pricing model, trying to understand where the risk-free rate is, where it might be going. But then as you add risk, making sure that you're getting the premium that you deserve, whether it be the liquidity premium, equity risk premium along those lines. So a lot of discussion is happening with regards to allocations. I would say the second area is the one that we just spoke to, which is rates. Mm -hmm. When will cuts come, how much, and what are the potential impacts on the markets? So again, you know, rate comes will come later than the market currently thinks in our view. I think that was beginning to be communicated yesterday by the Fed. And again, this is a function of, again, sticky wage growth, low unemployment, reflation that we're starting to see in the housing sector. And all of this represents you know 40% of GDP. So moving from 9% inflation to four with supply chain realization and things along those lines was straightforward. The path from four to two is where it's really going to be a bit more challenging. And we think that'll take more time. And as a result of the markets pricing in probably too many cuts too quickly, we do anticipate some volatility. So that's been our main message. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I want to talk about what all that then pretends like for markets in general. Let's then get started with public equities. Stocks were very resilient in 2023, especially given the aggressiveness of the Fed's tightening campaign, as you as you just talked about. But now here we are, right? The Fed is telegraphing cuts in 2024, and the market remains strong, right? So the S&P, for example, is up like about 20% or so over the past year or so. So what's your take on these events, and what's an equity investor to do going forward, especially vis-a-vis -vis what you just talked about in terms of getting, quote-unquote, getting paid for the investment, taking the right risk? Sure. I would point out that if you actually look on the 24-month period, the equity markets are basically flat with a 20 vol. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been <laughs> quite a ride. But if we actually you know, kind of dig in as to where we are now and on a forward, as you asked me, if you look at the concentration within the S&P 500, the so-called Magnificent Seven, those are trading at pretty heady PE multiples, 48 times or something along those lines. A lot of reliance and a lot of the return has been driven by those seven companies. What's quite interesting in the last week or two, there's been more talk of, is it really the Magnificent Four? And that's a function of earnings. And so people are actually looking very carefully at the earnings coming out this week from some of the larger tech companies to see if that can carry on. You know, if you look at it in totality across Wall Street analysts, they call for a 2% increase to the S&P 500 for 2024 in totality. So there's actually a negative risk premium. If you think about short-term treasuries, at least north of 5%, if you believe the forecast at 2%, you're not really getting paid. You're not getting an equity risk premium. I would turn listeners' attention to Barron's a couple of weeks ago when they had the roundtable discussions just to solidify that comment. Those folks are talking in terms of negative five to positive five on the year here again for the S&P 500. So it doesn't appear as though there's an equity risk premium that's embedded within the markets today and a heavy reliance on the MAG-7 or MAG-4, depending upon what the new definition might be here in the near term. So that's a really interesting point. Do you think this can continue for a long time? It sounds like 
there's such a discrepancy right now in terms of performance with the Magnificent Seven or four for that matter. You know, should investors be thinking about moving to the sidelines? What are your thoughts on that? Well, certainly diversifying is probably not a bad idea, particularly if you ran up so much so quickly with regard to the indices. My view is, and I've been communicating this to investors, if you like select stocks within the Magnificent Seven, you have high degrees of confidence and was actually just in a meeting last night at dinner where somebody was discussing the tax implications because there's so many embedded gains. Sure. Well, then, sure, maybe keep select stocks or hold on to them for the longer term if you have belief in them. But playing it within an index, you need to understand that the weightings and the thrust of any up or down movement is really being controlled by these select stocks. So we would think some form of diversification at this point. It makes a lot of sense. One last question is still on public equities because we saw the 493, so to speak, the S&P 493 kind of rebounding a little bit in the month of December last year. Do you expect, as the Fed enters this potential rate-cutting phase, do you think that we can get a little bit more breadth in the market? I think certainly as people went from you know, FOMO, <laughs> the participation, mm-hmm. there was some breath and there were some value plays that people were probably pursuing. But if you dial it back and look at year to date numbers, and I know it's a very short time period, but here again, the tech stocks are pushing, but the Russell is negative. And so that's kind of reversing out to a certain degree. We'll have to wait and see as earnings come through here in Q1, what that looks like to see if there's a little bit of lift. You know, one would think it would be a bit more balanced, but there's so many things that are hinging upon this you know, current earnings season coming up, particularly on the tech side. It'll be curious to see. So we don't have a crisp answer on that necessarily. That makes a lot of sense. So that's great. Thank you so much for those answers. So let's turn to public fixed income. What's the state of credit markets today from your point of view, Alex? Sure. So what we saw really in November, December on an accelerated basis, and it's really reflective of one of the messages today, which is the correlation between bonds and equities are right on top of one another. And so as the equities were moving up so aggressively, we saw spreads come in pretty significantly. You know, I would point out, we just got January results for investment grade issuance, record highs, $195 billion in January. Mm-hmm. And that's really reflective of the spread to treasuries being nearly the tightest of all time. And so companies are out issuing quite aggressively. Within high yield, we saw spreads come in aggressively as well, you know, running at kind of a 350 level. But if you if you kind of pop the hood and go inside and take a look at different investment rating areas, double B bonds are trading at 189 over treasuries, which that is awfully tight, Mm -hmm. particularly if you think about that in conjunction with recession probabilities. And the market is kind of at a 50 percent level. I would say we're at a 60% level. Now, again, depth is always the question. I don't think we're looking for a deep, hard landing here, but certainly recessionary realities. And so defaults are likely to pick up. So with the tightness in spreads relative to that, it just feels like spreads are a little bit divorced from economics and the realities that we may find ourselves in. The one last area I'd point out with this rally is the syndicated loan market. It's rallied to the degree that in January, we had 42% of all loans trading above par. Mm-hmm. And that has resulted in a material repricing wave as the banks are trying to trim back 25, 50 basis points of spread on those respective loans that are trading at these lofty levels. These are sort of the highest trading levels that we've seen in 
a couple of years. So I would say the public fixed market is very tight. We'll see how that behaves over time as inevitably, we think, as mentioned, defaults will pick up a bit as we march through the year. That's very insightful. And it's kind of funny, but I'll ask you, does that mean that investors are hunting for yields again? Yeah, to a degree. A lot of the conversations I'm having is you know, are income focused and where else could they potentially go? Mm-hmm. A lot of discretion you know, outside of the public markets as it relates to private credit, as an example. Obviously, Apollo is a big player in that space. And really, it's a function of is it a ticking time bomb or is there opportunities? And so for that segment of the overall market, one needs to look at segmentation. And so you have three segments in private credit just to simplify it sub 25 million of EBITDA companies, 25 to 100, your traditional middle market, and then mega cap, which would be really a lot of what we do, which is going to be north of 100 million, even as high as 250 million of cash flow. We see really good value in that segment. But the most important thing to be considering today is vintage. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about what has happened in private credit, or any credit, really, two years ago, managers didn't know inflation was coming in the manner that it has. And they certainly weren't forecasting 500 basis point increase in base rates. And so two years ago or before that, many managers were lending at 60% loan to values, which is traditional LBO finance levels, but at peak multiples. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got a situation where loan to values have come down quite considerably to like 40% or inside of that. And so the older vintages are feeling the effects of two things, margin compression because of inflation. And on top of that, debt service that has jumped quite a bit, two, three X from the time of the underwrite. And so the newer vintage with the lower leverage and the stronger interest coverage ratios, that appears to be better suited for investors today on a defensive basis. I would just point that out as a compare and contrast versus the public markets and certainly the segmentation and vintage risk that you might find within private credit. That makes a lot of sense. I would like to ask you just... Again, to just juxtapose what you just said, again, against the public markets, do you think it's time for people to start thinking about taking a little more duration in the portfolio? So this is a question I got quite often when I was over in Asia a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, certainly it's a hot topic, but that would have been a great question to ask me back in October. <laughs> and in IT is because you've seen such a dramatic move in spreads tightening which means those that had come in at that point on a little bit of a duration trade did quite well. Right now, I think it's neutral to a certain degree. I think you could argue it either way, but nonetheless, that trade has really happened quite aggressively here in the last call at 45 to 60 days. So I do think that there might be better opportunity sets away. It's a lot of sense. Thank you for that answer. So this sort of all calls into question, at least from my vantage point here, the wisdom of the traditional 60-40 portfolio, right? So there was a time when the 60-40 was pretty much sacrosanct, but those days are gone or are they really gone? I mean, what's your view on that debate today, Alex? Yeah. So let, let's just take a quick look back on that, right? I, mm-hmm. I don't think the 60-40 is necessarily dead, but it's not working well mm-hmm. uh, because of correlation. So if we look at the returns that it's delivered over time, right? 1990 through 2000, 12.8% positive. It worked. It was great. 2009, 1.9%. Not so great. Then we go 2010 to 2020, 8.6. Not terrible. But in the last two years, you've seen it basically flat with a lot of volatility. And I'd point out a couple of statistics. 
Mm-hmm. When I mentioned correlation, in 2022, the 60-40 was about 88% correlated. And really since August, stock and bond prices have been moving in tandem. And obviously the 60 is very much concentrated with the Magnificent Seven. So the question becomes, you know, what else can someone do fundamentally? So I don't think it's broken. I think the question becomes, is the 60 and the 40, can you take those down and replace it with something else to come back to what you're really seeking, which is alpha, muted volatility, and diversification? That's exactly right. Let's talk about that because I wanted to ask you about this. What can investors do to do exactly what you just said, to lower volatility in their portfolios and try to drive more potentially stable returns? Yeah. So what I've described to investors this year really is a function of everyone has an investment destination, right? And the question is, how do you want to get there? Do do you want to take a roller coaster ride and get calls from your investors all the time if you're an advisor? Or do you want to take a ticket on what I would describe as a passenger train? What do I mean by this? The roller coaster really is reflective of the vol that you have seen in the traditional 60-40, certainly emphasized with a 20-plus vol with regard to public equities. The passenger train really is private markets, okay? What we find there, particularly in private credit, we've seen vol you know, within the last 12 months as low as two. We have had private diversified portfolios, investment in funds and private direct investments, quite frankly, for more than a decade as we've invested on our own balance sheet at one third the volatility of the S&P or even lower. Mm -hmm. And so to us, for a portion of a portfolio as a replacement strategy to either the 60 or the 40, depending upon your risk tolerance, those type of applications could certainly help with providing, again, those three key attributes, alpha, muted vol. And certainly what this would bring forth is diversification. Diversification at a time where you're so concentrated with the MAG-7 could be helpful in achieving your investment destination goals. Well, that makes perfect sense. Walk me through your thought process here. So because you're talking about private equity and private credit as replacement to public allocations, correct? So, I mean, yes. not meant to be deployed in a, let's call it an alternatives bucket, rather as an integral part of one's core allocation. So am I reading you correctly? And if so, does one go about doing that? Yeah. So, you know, the word alternatives, it, it, it's interesting, right? It, it provokes, like, is it something exotic that mm-hmm. you're doing? And at its core, you know, at least from our perspective, we're not, we're lending money. So, In that context of private credit, if JP Morgan wins the loan, it's a traditional loan. Somehow, if Apollo wins that particular mandate, it's some alternative. Mm -hmm. It's a loan at its core. And so this is a traditional activity in our view. And that's why we lean more toward describing this as private markets, maybe not like alternatives, because what alternatives would connotate in a historic viewpoint would be, you know, hedge funds, liquid alternatives, or something more exotic to us, really, alternatives is just simply not a ticker symbol stock or a Q-supported bond. And so the way we think about it is exactly what you're describing, JP, which is fundamentally a replacement strategy. So for some form of the 60%, we have these private strategies that could deliver double-digit return with much lower volatility, and that could assist in kind of getting back to the old 60-40 concept, right? Where mm-hmm. other components of a portfolio will mute the volatility when others are going the other way, so on and so forth. 
The same could be said for private direct investments and you know private equity, if you will, equity replacement strategies, right? Private credit, actually with the returns today, you could argue it could be a public equity replacement and certainly a fixed income replacement. So it's really taking the two components of 60-40 and reducing both and inserting different private strategies to augment what you have in that traditional 60-40. And it couldn't be more pronounced today, as mentioned, with the concentration risk that one is taking in the 60% bucket, given the magnificent seven weighting within those indices. That makes a lot of sense. So let me let me drill down a little bit into what you've just said. Let me start with a 40%, with the private credit part of it. Because I think that a lot of folks, when we talk about private credit, they would think about you know, leveraged loans, or they're going to think about something, quote unquote, more risky. But what we're talking about here in terms of public debt or public credit replacement truly is finding opportunities and loans and lending opportunities, direct investment, direct lending rather opportunities that would translate into a more, quote unquote, investment grade type of credit profile, isn't it? I mean, I think that there's a new component here that's almost educational for folks to start considering because I think there's a still a, a dichotomy on the way people think about private credit. Yeah, I've been describing private credit lately and I've been in the business specifically for 25 of my 30 years is a bit of a corn maze. Mm. People need to be led and educated on the different components of it. You know, thinking back, private credit really was suggestive of middle market sponsor finance. And it's so much more broad than that. Through our lens, we are looking at investment grade all the way through large cap direct lending and all in between. So we believe each public market does have a private market. Honing in on private credit specifically, though, yes, you were suggesting you know, different areas. I'll bring that to light. You know, Apollo were the largest investment grade private lender globally, creating private transactions with investment grade ratings, you know, backed by our insurance company balance sheet. So that's different. Our asset-backed finance activities. You know, certainly any form of asset, right? Did you take a train today, a plane? How did you get to work? All these types of things can be financed in various ways, many a time in investment grade format. So it's a very vast marketplace that we can tap into in that regard. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, corporate finance, where we're lending into situations that might be backed by financial sponsors, buying companies, mergers, acquisitions, et cetera. But as we think about private credit in totality, it's a vast industry with a lot of different applications and areas in which we can push into. But I think the key takeaway to your point is we do this in a very downside protected, largely, almost exclusively first lean way, where we're top of the capital structure mm -hmm. with strong documentation, strong covenants. And so because we are an underwriter to hold organization, all of those things are important to us. Remember, the banking model is an underwrite to distribute model. What is the clearing level? That's distinctly different. Mm -hmm. So some would say, ooh, isn't private credit more risky, as you just kind of highlighted or questioned me on? I would argue the other side, which is to say private credit lenders like ourselves are underwriting to hold. And so therefore, we want enhanced protections. We want lower loan to values. And we want to be lending against assets that provide us with complete downside protection. And the trading isn't really a key component. Do we do it? Do we have the capacity to do so? Sure. 
but having the underwrite done appropriately, carefully is more important to us fundamentally. It makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. But one of the things that's been sort of an issue for quite some time is the challenge for individual investors on how to add private markets to portfolios. So you've been talking to a lot of folks. Can you explain how one might implement this today, this kind of idea of replacing equity and replacing debt in their 60-40 portfolios? So there have been many strategies that have been developed lately by ourselves and others that are semi-liquid strategies where that investors could come in on a monthly basis, afford them quarterly liquidity. And the benefit of that is investors are having the ability to invest in a defined pool that certainly will grow over time, but is very transparent. In the past, many of the investors you know, didn't have the requisite amount of capital to access those funds. Two, they were drawdown funds you know, in isolation. And so I think fundamentally, the strategies have really developed to the benefit of the investors to have access. Here again, allowing them, you know, for the first time in many cases, access to these private market strategies, whether it be private credit, private equity, private direct investments at all. So that makes a lot of sense. I think that it's an important component, like the accessibility and the availability of such strategies. But I think another component that I'm going to ask you about is the implementation component, because I think that when one talks to folks about adding private credit or adding private equity, one still thinks about, I have to create layered programs or I have to deal with capital calls and cash drag and so on. And these strategies are a little bit different, right? So talk to me a little bit about it. Yeah. So the strategies fundamentally, the dollars coming in are invested on day one in a diversified transparent pool, number one. Number two, you don't need to manage J-curve because, again, many of these are older vintage funds or strategies embedded within these overall strategies. So there's no need to time or you know trying to come into certain vintages versus others and so forth. So we're trying to smooth the overall performance figures, mute that volatility, create the alpha and provide the diversification that investors would need. And it's really been done most recently to allow for folks in global wealth and beyond to access these types of strategies fundamentally. That makes a lot of sense. Alex, as you talk to market participants, do you see these types of strategies being implemented already? Or are we still at an early adopter stage? Or do you think private markets are now kind of more poised to become mainstream in wealth portfolios? Well, certainly it depends, you know, who you're talking to. And why Mm -hmm. I say that is I was speaking on a panel yesterday, in fact, here in California, and I asked those in the audience, some 200 advisors, you know, how many people were using 30% private markets? And then I took it down and down and down. And it was very clear to me that there's a function of earlier adopters and those were trying to replicate more of the endowment style model for their own investors. But Here, education is key. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of learning that's being done by way of advisors and other investors trying to get an understanding of these particular, whether it be strategies, products, or asset classes. You know, so for example, we have the ApolloAcademy.com where you could go and learn about these things. It's very important to us to be a voice in the industry defining what these are and how investors could potentially use them. So I would say we're somewhat early, certainly. We think that there's a lot of room for growth. 
And that gets back to sort of the earlier 60-40 question as far as what else could one do? We think that this makes a lot of sense. We think there's a lot of room for growth for alternatives or, if you will, private markets to be part of that. And so we think that there's many years to come on the development of these strategies and implementation, but importantly, education along the way. That's great. Well, really exciting time, I think, for everyone, you know, the industry in general, but also for participants and retirees, you know, where now having an opportunity to at least have some sort of exposure to a particular asset class and being able to diversify in a much more efficient way, if you would, than in the past. Alex, we're coming up on our allotted time here, but I wanted to ask you one more question because I think it's a it's an important one given everything else that we talked about here today. So Torsten recently pointed out in his Daily Spark blog, for instance, that we have roughly $6 trillion on the sidelines in money market funds today. So that's against $4.6 trillion that we had in March 22 when the Fed started raising rates. So as you talk to market participants, what's your sense of where this money might migrate to and if and when the Fed starts cutting rates? Sure. And it's a great observation. I had said to our teams last year, our biggest competitor is not necessarily our peer set, but it could be the U.S. government. <laughs> and they laughed just like you did. And it really was a function of the fact that you could certainly buy treasuries and can still buy short-term treasuries, at least north of 5%. You know, Torsen and I co-authored a paper about that, though, highlighting the fact that at 5%, if you think about it on an after-tax basis, an inflation-adjusted basis, you're basically treading water. So although the headline number looks attractive, overall, the net-net, if you will, is not necessarily going to get you to your destination for where you want to get to. So we've been having a lot of discussions with regard to trying to talk people through private credit as a pivot concept, having them consider other strategies on the private equity side. But I think if you really pin me down to the mats as to where's this money going to go, if rates start getting cut for the right reasons, and they're not getting cut because the economy is getting really weak, but we see a soft landing. I think inevitably some of this will go into public equities as much as I've already kind of lamented on mag seven and PE levels and all of these things. Mm -hmm. So some will go there. The next question though, is where else should one consider, you know, I think first and foremost, private markets should be a serious consideration here, given the low volatility, because of course, why are people attracted to treasuries or money markets to begin with, right? Safety, low vol and some decent return. And I think here we can evidence that through private market strategies. And again, it gets back to education and kind of telling the story of private markets and making people understand that these aren't exotic things from many years ago. So if we can continue to deliver that type of performance, educate people and bring them along, I think a good amount could find their way into private markets or a requisite share to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. And the private credit market in particular, I just came across this particular statistic not long ago. It's now 20% or north of 20% of the entire credit market against, I think it was around 4% or something just, you know, at the beginning of the century. So there has been, I guess, some sort of acknowledgement of what you're just saying in the market already, right? Certainly. And I think that's why much of the conversation I've been having within private credit has been around defining segmentation, as I mentioned earlier, 
defining the difference between the vintages. Because I do think since so much has moved in, there's a concern that is it too much too quickly? I would argue the opposite. It's still very low as an overall. If you think about the high yield market and the levered loan market on the syndicate side, that's a $3 trillion marketplace. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of runway. So to say, the bigger concern is, do we have a situation where headline risk comes into play and older vintage funds having perhaps some difficulties? And that's why we've been really trying to educate people on those segmentation and vintage topics so they can understand where is the best place to go. And it really isn't attacking older vintage. It's really just highlighting, okay, your next incremental dollar, where is it better suited? Where is it defended better? Where are you getting better risk-adjusted returns? And so that's been the major message here. If they want to pivot, that's fine. That's up to the investor and their advisors. But fundamentally, those are the sort of the main messages we've been trying to communicate. That makes a lot of sense. Alex, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your insights. But before I let you go, we have a tradition here on the show now that every guest gives us a personal recommendation. So that could be a book that you're reading, a movie you watched, some activities, sports. You know, in other words, what have you been doing when you're not following the day-to-day ups and downs of financial markets? Sure. Well, this is a fun one that many of my friends actually have engaged with as I've recommended it. It's a book called Die With Zero <laughs> okay. by Bill Perkins III. And it's really a philosophy and a concept of living rich instead of dying rich. And it's really a story of life balance. So one should enjoy the success along the way is the major message. My daughter hates the book, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> because she doesn't want the zero number but it's more directional than it is absolute. So it's a quick read. It's enjoyable. It just gives you some insight on, you know, over the course of a lifetime as people are successful and we're talking about creating value and wealth, how to engage with it and have some fun along the way. So I would encourage you to take a look at that. That's great. I'll I'll surely do that. I have a personal recommendation as well. And I thought that my personal recommendation is is a bit of a guilty pleasure. And after yours, definitely a guilty pleasure. And it is the Gilded Age show on HBO. So it's produced by Julian Fallows, who created Downton Abbey as well. And the story is pretty cool. It, It showcases the New York elite in the latter part of the 19th century. And as expected, you know, it's very well written very witty. It's full of drama, full of intrigue, and quite candidly, just a lot of fun. So my wife and I have had a great time watching it together, and I surely recommend it to our listeners. And with that, I'd like to thank you again, Alex, so much for being with us here today. And of course, as always, we'd like to thank you all so very much for listening. Well, thank you, JP, and thank you everyone for tuning in. Much appreciated. This podcast was recorded on February 1st, 2024. Thanks for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible, or by visiting ApolloAcademy.com, our educational website dedicated to alternative investing, where you can also sign up to have Torsten's Daily Spark economic blog delivered directly to your inbox. Once again, thanks for listening. Apollo Global Management Incorporated, together with its subsidiaries, Apollo, makes no representation or warranty expressed or implied with respect to the accuracy, reasonableness, or completeness of any of the statements made during this podcast, including, but not limited to, statements obtained from third parties. Opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the current judgment of the speaker as of the date indicated. 
They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Apollo and are subject to change at any time without notice. Apollo does not have any responsibility to update this podcast to account for such changes. There can be no assurance that any trends discussed during this podcast will continue. Statements made throughout this podcast are not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, or tax advice and do not constitute an investment recommendation or investment advice. Investors should make an independent investigation of the information discussed during this podcast, including consulting their tax, legal, accounting, or other advisors about such information. Apollo does not act for you and is not responsible for providing you with the protections afforded to its clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security, product, or service, including interest in any investment product or fund or account managed or advised by Apollo. Certain statements made throughout this podcast may be forward-looking in nature due to various risks and uncertainties Actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking information. As such, undue reliance should not be placed on such statements. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of terminology including, but not limited to, may, will, should, expect, anticipate, target, project, estimate, intend, continue, or believe, or the negatives thereof, or other variations thereon, or comparable terminology.